Hello, and welcome to NTD News Today. Kevin Hogan here. Let's take a look at our top stories. Sarah Palin going after the New York Times, her defamation trial starting today. What are the stakes, and why are some saying this could be a landmark case? Lawmakers pledging to oppose funding for President Biden's vaccine mandates. This comes as the Army starts discharging unvaccinated soldiers, and a Pfizer board member says mask mandates may be a thing of the past for schools. General Motors workers in Mexico elect an independent union pushing for higher wages. The vote is one of the first over labor reform that underpins a new trade deal with Canada and the United States. President Biden announces that U.S. forces took out the leader of the ISIS terrorist group in Syria. The Pentagon says no U.S. personnel were killed in the operation. Last night, operating on my orders, United States military forces successfully moved a major terrorist threat to the world, the global leader of ISIS, known as Haji Abdullah. He took over as leader of ISIS in uh, 2019 after the United States counterterrorism operation killed al-Baghdadi. Biden said he and other U.S. officials chose a raid over an airstrike in an attempt to minimize civilian casualties. But he says the terrorist leader blew up an entire floor of a building at the time of the raid, killing himself and some of his own family members. The Defense Department press secretary says the mission was carried out by U.S. Special Operations Forces. They landed in helicopters. Witnesses say they clashed for two hours with gunmen. First responders reported that 13 people were killed, including six children and four women. After a delay, Sarah Palin's defamation trial against the New York Times started today. Palin says she's trying to get justice for people who expect truth in the media, but some are worried the case could end up hurting press freedom by making it easier for public officials to win cases against the media for inaccuracies. NTD's Jessica Beatty reports. Sarah Palin's facing off against the New York Times Thursday. This case is very significant because it is a high-profile public figure, Ms. Palin, who's famous. She's going into the media capital of the world, New York. Palin sued the Times and former opinion editor James Bennett in 2017 over an editorial. It incorrectly linked her political rhetoric to a 2011 Arizona mass shooting that left six dead and lawmaker Gabby Giffords seriously wounded. The Times later corrected it. So ordinarily in a case involving defamation claims by a public figure, uh, the media ought to feel very confident. First Amendment lawyer Doug Morell says a correction means the paper effectively conceded that what was first published was false. To win, Palin has to prove the Times did it with actual malice, meaning it knew the editorial was false but published it anyway. Uh, and the question will be really a sort of psychological inquiry into, you know, what did the Times know and when did it know it? What should it have known? What sort of investigation did it uh, pursue or not pursue? And those will be, you know, very factually dependent questions. The trial comes as some legal scholars recommend revisiting the Supreme Court's landmark 1964 decision in New York Times v. Sullivan which made it difficult for public officials to prove defamation. Palin has signaled she would challenge the Sullivan case president on appeal if she loses at trial. But some are concerned that could impact press freedom. There has to be proof that the journalists acted knowing what they were publishing was false, 
before you can get a, a defamation verdict against them, because otherwise it will make reporters too cautious, too worried if any little mistake can give rise to a multi-million dollar judgment. That's the principle that's at stake here. Palin seeking unspecified damages, saying the editorial harmed her reputation. The trial is expected to last five days. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. A group of 49 Republican representatives and senators is making a pledge. It's to oppose the funding for the enforcement of all President Biden's vaccine mandates. This, while the Army says it's going to start discharging or separating soldiers who have not complied with the vaccine mandate. The Republicans opposed to the vaccine mandate funding signed a letter, and Representative Chip Roy of Texas posted it on Twitter. The letter was addressed to the House and Senate minority leaders. The letter referenced the Biden administration's five separate COVID vaccine mandates. It says, after February 18, 2022, government funding will expire and congressional Republicans must once again decide whether they will vote to fund a federal government that is enforcing tyrannical COVID-19 vaccine mandates on the American people. The Supreme Court has struck down Biden's private sector mandate but upheld the one for health care workers. And on Wednesday, the Army announced it will start discharging or separating soldiers who defy the vaccine mandate. The order applies to regular soldiers, active duty Army reservists, and Army cadets unless they have an exemption or a pending one. Army Secretary Christine Wormuth said in a statement, Army readiness depends on soldiers who are prepared to train, deploy, fight, and win our nation's wars. Unvaccinated soldiers present risk to the force and jeopardize readiness. Soldiers who are discharged for this reason won't be eligible for involuntary separation pay, and they might also have to pay back any unearned, special, or incentive pay, according to the Army. And a Pfizer board member says schools may want to consider removing mask mandates. Scott Gottlieb, a former FDA director, made the suggestion. He told CNBC, We're going to probably have to tolerate, and probably should, a higher level of baseline spread at the point at which we consider withdrawing some of this mitigation. Gottlieb said if the government holds out and tries to get case counts down to 10 per 100,000 per day, it might take until the summer. He says at that point, the school system would lose the chance of returning to normalcy in the spring. The company he sits on the board for, Pfizer, is seeking emergency use authorization to give its vaccine to children as young as six months old. Now we look at the Biden administration's impact on families in the U.S. and abroad. Domestically, Senate Democrats are urging Biden to reinstate his expanded child tax credit that expired at the end of last year. They say it could bring down child poverty by over 40 percent and reduce hunger among families with children by about 25 percent. But research director Rebecca Oas at the Center for Family and Human Rights argues that some of Biden's policies are hurting families internationally. She says Biden's decision to support pro-abortion groups as opposed to faith-based groups has dealt a blow to the health of women and children in foreign countries. What we've seen uh, with President Biden in the first year in office is really a reversal of all of the pro-life and pro-family uh, policies that uh, President Trump's administration had put into place. So under President Trump, for example, he reinstated and expanded what's known as the Mexico City policy, which blocks U.S. taxpayer funds from going to abortion groups overseas. Uh, and Biden, of course, as one of his first uh, actions in office, rescinded that policy, which means that groups like the International Planned Parenthood Federation and its affiliates are now eligible for U.S. money 
Um, of course, because of the law that's been in place for many years, the U.S. does not fund abortion itself directly. But we know that money is fungible, and so the uh, organizations that do promote abortion overseas, uh, you know, if we give them money for anything, it goes toward their work uh, in expanding abortion and, and also lobbying foreign governments uh, to liberalize their abortion laws. So how has Biden's program to fund the Global Equality Fund affected American families and those abroad? Well, what this, what this fund would do basically is channel uh, money to groups on the ground that promote uh, radical social agendas, in particular involving uh, the LGBT issues, often in countries where they have very uh, traditional and uh, highly religious populations where these policies would be very unpopular. And it is a way of basically taking U.S. influence uh, in a new way and basically, you know, channeling it through these groups on the ground who would then go and lobby their governments. So it's not the same as the U.S. directly going to those governments, but rather it's, it will have the face of the local population, um, even if these ideas, like I said, are very unpopular. Um, but the U.S. is also using its, its influence on these issues uh, to uh, promote the idea of, of sanctioning people who speak out uh, in a, on these issues from a traditional standpoint. Uh, there have been cases where, uh, for example, uh, religious leaders who, who speak on uh, traditional moral issues, like the, the definition of the family, uh, have been regarded as inciting hate against those who take a different view. And so there is, you know, an effort by this government to obviously promote the LGBT and the, the gender ideology agenda around the world, but also to perhaps put in place a system that would uh, put people on lists, for example, where they would be denied U.S. visas or access to funding if they were deemed, you know, again, uh, by this administration uh, to be inciting, uh, you know, hatred against, against people who identify as LGBT. And as we have seen examples, this can be, you know, a very broadly defined category. The Biden administration has made a goal of protecting the human rights of LGBT people abroad. Through the U.S. Agency for International Development, it seeks to decriminalize same-sex conduct. And according to the White House website, the State Department, through the Global Equality Fund, provides emergency assistance to frontline human rights advocates. Workers at a General Motors pickup truck plant in Mexico have a new independent labor union. That's after a vote by more than 6,000 workers. The new union is supported by international activists. It beat one of Mexico's biggest labor organizations that held the contract for 25 years. It's poised to bring about a bump in wages in a country where salaries have stagnated for years. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. The vote is one of the first over labor reform that underpins a new trade deal with Canada and the United States and aims to help improve pay by breaking the grip of unions that critics say sign deals with companies behind workers' backs. With the union we've had for years, they raise our wage by 14 pesos. Alongside those 14 pesos, they raise transportation, union fees, and cafeteria prices. Practically, we were breaking even, year in and year out. We are hoping for many improvements. The union renewal took place at the pickup truck plant in the central city of Salau and comes after workers in August dissolved their contract with the Confederation of Mexican Workers, or CTM. Workers at the Salau plant hope for improved conditions as they recall meager pay raises and stagnant wages. Prices right now are very high and the wage we have is not enough. Furthermore, many have loans, the government's home payments, Infonavi, and they can't make ends meet. They need to find another job, a different source of income beyond this one. The vote was monitored by U.S. officials. 
The U.S. threatened to impose tariffs on GM exports under the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement trade deal if the automaker did not protect workers' rights. Many workers want to push out CTM. The organization has held the Salau contract since the plan opened in 1995 and is aligned with the Institutional Revolutionary Party that ruled Mexico for decades. We need better follow-ups for workers' conditions, for contracts. We've been like this a long time. In my case, I've spent 26 years with the same wage. There is no sign 26 years on that we'll get what is due. No, no. Many workers want the rival independent union Cintia in place of CTM. That group grew out of a movement that urged workers to reject their contract last year, gaining a large following that boosted its chances of victory. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A new study is putting Arizona's voter rolls in the hot seat. Released by the Public Interest Legal Foundation, it's found a number of irregularities. The group revealed hundreds of voters claimed storefront addresses as legal residences. The group examined records across the state. That data shows almost 500 people used storefront addresses as legal addresses. 110 of those voted in the 2020 general election. Though a seemingly small number, those statistics can prove significant. On election day in 2020, 30 state legislative elections across the U.S. were decided by 100 votes or fewer. In one New Hampshire race, the margin of victory was just four votes. The Arizona study also found larger election irregularities with the potential to affect more votes. Responding to the report, a spokeswoman for the Maricopa County Elections Department spoke to the Epic Times. She said election staff spent thousands of hours in 2021 responding to rumors, lies, and innuendo related to the 2020 election and that they have publicly available information showing the integrity of election workers and effective checks and balances. Its case closed for one former Alabama Senate candidate. A woman had accused Roy Moore of molesting her in 1979, but a jury decided that neither party defamed the other. A victory that uh, they brought the claim, they paid millions of dollars to prosecute the claim, and it is now dismissed. So He won the claim. I feel a very heavy burden has been lifted off him. This is not a victory for Roy Moore. It's not a vindication of him. Although we are disappointed that the jury did not find that Mr. Moore's statements about Lee rose to the level of defamation, we are gratified that the jury necessarily found that Lee was telling the truth about her experience with Mr. Moore in 1979. A jury on Wednesday found no defamation occurred between Moore and Lee Korfman, the woman who accused him of molesting her. The allegations roiled the 2017 Senate race in Alabama. Korfman said Moore sexually touched her in 1979 when she was 14 years old. He was a 32-year-old assistant district attorney at the time. Korfman filed the suit, alleging Moore defamed her by branding her a liar when he denied the accusations. Moore countersued, claiming Korfman injured his reputation with false allegations meant to hurt him politically. Moore sees the outcome as a win for him, while Korfman's lawyer views it as a partial win for his client. He says the jury believes the molestation incident did happen. Korfman's allegations upended Moore's Senate campaign in 2017. The late Bob Dole, former U.S. Senate Majority Leader and a celebrated World War II hero, was buried with military honors Wednesday in Arlington National Cemetery.
About 100 close family members and former colleagues were in attendance at the private service. Dole was honored with a three-volley salute and the playing of taps. Dole died on December 5, 2021, at the age of 98. He was honored publicly days later as he lay in state under the U.S. Capitol Dome and with a funeral service at the Washington National Cathedral. He now rests in Arlington National Cemetery alongside around 400,000 other distinguished veterans and eligible dependents. A New York professor's comments about adult child sex has triggered an uproar. The university says it's investigating his reprehensible statements. A word of caution, this story contains information some viewers may find disturbing. NTD's Miguel Moreno reports. In this YouTube video by Brain in a Vat, philosophy professor Stephen Kirshner discusses taboos and criminal offenses, including pedophilia. Imagine that an adult male uh, wants to have sex with a 12-year-old girl. Imagine that she's a willing participant. A, a very standard, very widely held view that there's something deeply wrong about this, and it's wrong independent of it being criminalized. It's not obvious to me that it is, in fact, wrong. Professor Kirshner also said that to him, the idea of adult child sex with one-year-olds isn't undoubtedly wrong. State University of New York Fredonia, known as SUNY, responded to their professor's comments in a statement. The views expressed by the professor are reprehensible and do not represent the values of SUNY Fredonia in any way, shape, or form. The matter is being reviewed. We contacted Kirshner, but he hasn't gotten back to us. In a video from 2020, he discusses his book on adult child sex and pedophilia with the founder of Renegade University. Um, I had good friends who said, are you crazy? Do not write that book. Man, listen, you're talking to a guy who for 25 years has been making arguments more or less in defense of adult child sex in classrooms. SUNY University knows that the professor has written about adult child sex as his work is referenced on his university profile. Kirshner also spoke about supposed benefits of adult child sex. We asked the college if Kirshner teaches about those supposed benefits in class, but we haven't heard back. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. Two senators are reintroducing a bill aimed at cyberspace. It seeks to strip online platforms of legal protections if they're found to host child sexual abuse content. The bill would overhaul the 1996 Communications Decency Act. It's known as the Earn It Act. If passed, it would establish a new commission designed to target sexual abuse content. The commission would develop best practices for platforms to prevent that abuse. Earn It has already garnered significant bipartisan support, but faces backlash from net choice. The business trade group advocates for laissez-faire principles toward the internet. It says the bill hurts digital privacy and that it would make getting out of court convictions easier for those posting exploitation material online. Senator Lindsey Graham's office told the Epic Times that the net choice claim is inaccurate. The National Transportation Safety Board is investigating a high-speed crash that left nine people dead, including four children, over the weekend in Las Vegas. Investigators say a Dodge Challenger with two people inside was going more than 100 miles per hour when it caused the crash. The car reportedly sped through a red light and slammed into a minivan, causing a chain reaction. A total of six vehicles were involved in the crash. Among those killed were the two passengers traveling in the car that caused the crash. Six people were injured. The Clark County Coroner's Office has identified everyone who died in the wreck. 
They confirmed the cause of death was blunt force trauma. The NTSB typically does not investigate accidents involving ordinary passenger motor vehicles, but they say this crash is an exception that could lead to new safety regulations. A classified satellite for the U.S. National Reconnaissance Office was launched into space from California on Wednesday. The NROL-87 satellite lifted off from Vandenberg Space Force Base aboard a two-stage SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. Liftoff of L-87. Go Falcon, go, go. The launch was webcast until the first stage completed its burn and separated from the second stage. Under NRO rules, media coverage of the flight to orbit had to end at that point. The Falcon's first stage flew back to the seaside base near Los Angeles and landed so that it can be reused in a future mission. Central Coast residents were advised to expect sonic booms as the booster returned. The satellite's launch was one of the three awarded by the Air Force to SpaceX in 2019 for a combined price of $297 million. The NRO is the government agency in charge of developing, building, launching, and maintaining U.S. satellites. They are used to provide intelligence data to policymakers, the intelligence community, and the Defense Department. Still to come, a Belgian Olympian is finally allowed back into the Olympic Village. That's after she shared a tearful video while in isolation despite a negative COVID-19 test. State Department spokesman Ned Price said U.S. athletes are entitled to condemn human rights abuses in China. That's amid concerns about Beijing silencing critics ahead of the Olympics. Find out more here on NTD News. Rafa Nadal says he's not sure whether he would compete at El Capoco later this month, although he expected to be at Indian Wells in March. The Spaniard's victory at the Australian Open moved him one title up from his two great rivals, Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic. He said on Wednesday he would love to end up with the most titles, but he said there would be more than 21 titles for the man that ends up with the most Grand Slam trophies. The 35-year-old pulled out of Wimbledon, the Tokyo Olympics, and the U.S. Open in 2021. He returned, to compete, he returned to competitive action last month and now says the satisfaction of winning his second Australian Open crown is impossible to describe. If you're heading to the Super Bowl in L.A., officials say free N95 masks will be given out to ticket holders. Tests and vaccinations will also be available on site at the Los Angeles Convention Center's Super Bowl experience. And I'm thrilled that people are going to make the commitment to keep the small business owners here in Inglewood safe, the workers here at the stadium safe, and the people surrounding them sharing in this amazing experience. So everybody can holler and scream and celebrate and root on our hometown team safely behind a K95 or N95 mask that the NFL has so graciously agreed to provide to each and every attendee on February 13th. A managing partner for the stadium says fans need to keep their masks on unless actively eating or drinking. He added that staff will look out for people not complying. The news comes after Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti was seen at last Sunday's playoff game without a mask. He addressed the controversy afterward, saying he only takes off his mask for photographs. 
The hometown Los Angeles Rams play the Cincinnati Bengals at Super Bowl 56. The game is set for SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles suburb of England. This year's Super Bowl tickets are also the most expensive to date. The cheapest seats are going for $7,000, while the most expensive soar to a whopping $65,000 before fees. Budweiser and one of its famous Clydesdales will return to the Super Bowl this year. The beer company has a new commercial that celebrates the ability to overcome life's challenges. Brands are paying as much as $6 million for more than a, a half-minute commercial slot. They hope to stand out in front of the year's biggest audience on U.S. television. The advertisement shows an injured Clydesdale working through setbacks with help from a vet, a stableman, and an attentive dog. The horse makes a triumphant recovery while down never means out flashes on the screen. Budweiser has made some of the most memorable Super Bowl commercials over the years, some featuring frogs or puppies. The majestic Clydesdales have represented the brand in television ads since the 1950s. Last year, the beer maker did not produce a Super Bowl TV ad for the first time in 37 years. Budweiser instead made a donation to support awareness of COVID-19 vaccines. The company hopes its new ad will spark feelings of optimism among viewers after two years of challenges from the global pandemic. A Japanese Olympic snowboarder suffered a heavy fall today. It happened while she was training. Rina Yoshika was on a slope style course at the snow park in China. She was taken away in an ambulance. A Team Japan spokesperson said Yoshika crash-landed from one of the jumps. She lay motionless and a medical team rushed to help. She cried out in pain when they tried to move her. It took almost 20 minutes for Yoshika to be moved from the course onto a stretcher. The spokesperson said the need for an ambulance was likely a precaution and did not mean her injuries were serious. Yoshika, 23, is scheduled to compete in the slope style and big air events at the Beijing Games. In the lead-up to the Beijing Olympics, fear is gripping athletes and personnel who have tested positive for COVID-19. A Belgian Olympian recounted her isolation nightmare in a tearful video. Belgian skeleton racer Kim Meilmans was tested positive upon her arrival in Beijing, leading to a three-day stay in isolation. After it ended Wednesday with a negative test, the 25-year-old thought she was going to the Olympic Village, but she broke down in tears facing what seemed to be a second round of isolation. I'm supposed to stay here for um, another seven days with two PCRs a day and no contact with anybody else. She says she was surprised when the ambulance she boarded after leaving isolation drove past the Olympic Village and sent her to another facility. I am allowed to slide alone. I am, we are not even sure I will ever be allowed to return to the village. And obviously this is very hard for me. Her teary video on social media brought immediate attention. The International Olympic Committee soon intervened and hours later, Milemans was transported to the Winter Olympic Village. It seems like the video and especially also the efforts of my Olympic committee have really paid off. At uh, 11.35 p.m. Uh, there was a knock on my door and I was escorted to the Olympic Village. I am now in a wing that's just isolation 
but at least I'm back in the village. Belgium's head of mission Beijing 2022 showed understanding of the COVID safety measures during the games, but said the athlete must remain central. 55 new COVID-19 infections were identified among related personnel Wednesday, including 29 cases from new airport arrivals. According to the Beijing 2022 medical expert panel, a total of 287 positive tests have been confirmed so far since January 23rd. Concerns about Beijing's silencing of critics have been a focus in the run-up to the Olympics. State Department spokesman Ned Price was asked what U.S. athletes should do if they want to protest human rights abuses in China. Price answered that they have the right to express themselves freely. Uh, we know that uh, the PRC uses disinformation to veil uh, ongoing genocide in Xinjiang and other human rights abuses. Uh, we know that the PRC has made various accusations, including against uh, U.S. athletes, and we know that's what's going on here. Uh, U.S. athletes are entitled to express themselves freely in line with the spirit and charter of the Olympics, which includes advancing human rights. Uh, we call on the PRC to respect human rights and fundamental freedoms, including that very freedom of expression. China's persecution and mass incarceration of the Uyghur ethnic minority has prompted President Biden to not send a government delegation to the Games. Chinese officials in response have accused foreign critics of politicizing the Olympics. Price stressed that the U.S. is not coordinating a global campaign against participation in the Winter Games. Yang Xu, an official from Beijing's Olympic Organizing Committee, last month threatened certain punishment for behavior or speech that is against Chinese law. U.S. lawmakers are concerned that the Chinese Communist parties may arrest American athletes who stand up against Beijing's human rights abuses. Up next, the police chief of Canada's capital isn't ruling out using the military to end the trucker demonstration. And while still in a stalemate at the national level, protesters begin local negotiation talks. Stay tuned to find out more. And an update on the Canadian truckers protesting vaccine mandates. Negotiation talks were reportedly underway in Alberta late Wednesday afternoon. Meanwhile, in the nation's capital, the government isn't showing any signs of giving in. And the police chief says there is likely no policing solution to the demonstration. Entity's Grace Coulter has the details. Wednesday marks the fifth day of the truckers' protest in Canada's capital against vaccine mandates. And Ottawa's police chief says they're losing confidence that police alone can handle the situation. And it's in that context that I make the statement, there is likely no policing solution to this, but in combination with other efforts, there may be other opportunities to substantially reduce, if not um, end this demonstration. Police Chief Peter Slawley didn't rule out help from the military when asked by a reporter. When you say other than police, do you mean, do you need politics? Do you need military? I'm very, I'm not, I don't understand the answer. I understand it's not only police, but then what are those other options that are not police options that we might need? I think you just listed most of them right there. The city's mayor, Jim Watson, added to the chief's comments, saying this whole occupation can end tomorrow if they show some empathy, as they say they are. He said residents' nerves are frayed and that they haven't been able to sleep for five nights in a row due to the honking. But the truckers have made it clear that they won't leave until the mandates are lifted. 
Meanwhile, truckers blockading the U.S.-Canada border crossing reportedly met with rural ministers of Alberta's Legislative Assembly Wednesday afternoon. This is to discuss the demands put forward by the truckers. Since Sunday, they've been blockading the Alberta-Montana Highway to protest vaccine mandates. According to on-the-ground reporting from Rebel News, the truckers opened one lane of traffic to meet a condition set forth by the assembly members. If they do not meet our requests, that border is shut again immediately. The trucker's lawyer, Chad Williamson, recorded a statement discussing the new developments. This is extremely positive, and this is the this is the reason uh, why we bring parties together uh, to try to resolve things peacefully. As of 5 p.m. Eastern Time, there was no update on the outcome of the negotiation. Grace Coulter, NTD News. A trash collector strike in the French port city of Marseille has been going on for three weeks. This has led to a huge accumulation of untreated trash in the city. French media reported that a workers' union is mobilizing the garbage collector strike the third in four months. They oppose the municipality's attempts to end a system that has been in operation for decades. Under the system, workers can call it a day when they think their work is done. As such, garbage collectors in Marseille only have to work about three and a half hours a day. More than 3,000 tons of garbage have been piled up since the walkout. Streets are littered with trash, some blown away by the strong sea wind. A local NGO is concerned that the garbage will end up in the sea and endanger marine life. Some residents even chose to burn the garbage, creating a fire hazard. The mayor said emergency trucks would be called in to collect the garbage. New Zealand announced a phasing opening of its border. The country has been largely closed for two years due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but travel bodies say self-isolation rules need to be removed to relieve the struggling tourism sector. After being largely closed off for two years, New Zealand announced a phased reopening of its border on Thursday. Vaccinated New Zealanders in Australia will be able to travel home from February 27th without needing to stay at state-managed quarantine facilities, while citizens in the rest of the world will be able to do so two weeks later, according to Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Moving to a new city in the middle of a pandemic. That can't come soon enough for expatriates like Moira Duffy, who is currently living in San Francisco. I'd actually decided only two weeks ago that I was going to stop even looking at updates around the border situation because I just couldn't handle the emotional roller coaster any longer. It was too hard. Um, it was starting to really get at me because it's. Um, I miss home. What? Um, yeah. There will be a phased reopening for tourists, with frustrated travel bodies urging for additional isolation periods to be removed altogether to revive the struggling tourism sector. Foreign vaccinated backpackers and some skilled workers can enter the country from mid-March. But tourists from Australia and other visa-free countries will only be allowed in from July. Travellers from the rest of the world will be kept out until October. All visitors will have to self-isolate for 10 days. Fortress New Zealand has had some of the toughest COVID-related border controls in the world, keeping infections and deaths low. But critics have called the system unfair. Tens of thousands of expats have been cut off from families back home, 
Residents have lost jobs and businesses dependent on international tourism have been left devastated. Just ahead, the Italian island of Sardinia imposes a ban on sea urchin harvesting. Authorities say the creature is almost extinct, but fishermen debate the claim. A wildlife park in the UK is celebrating the birth of a baby southern koala. It's the first of the species born in the country and all of Europe. That and more here on NTD News. Sardinia has imposed an island-wide ban on harvesting sea urchins. Authorities say the ban is necessary because dwindling numbers threaten near extinction of the creatures, which they blame on overfishing. But many fishermen contest this, saying sea urchins are abundant. They oppose the ban and are determined to save their livelihoods. NTD's Joy Duguid has more on this. An island-wide ban on sea urchin harvesting in Sardinia came into effect late last month. It's become a thorn in the side of fishermen whose livelihoods depend on the culinary delicacy. Just before the ban took effect, three fishermen went out on a speedboat to pluck some of their last urchins from the rocky seabed. Let's go and earn a living. They want to take our jobs away. Look what we have to do in the morning. It's not a game to wake up and jump in the water. They harvest four fruit cases of urchins and a small octopus too. And then they say that there are no sea urchins. That's not true. The urchins are there. They put out this rumor that the urchins aren't there anymore, but it's false. If you talk to divers who go into the water, they will tell you that the urchins are there and they are abundant. The fishing community of Cagliari have for decades been collecting sea urchins from rocky waters in the south of the island, which are then sold on to restaurants. The island's environment minister imposed the ban, calling the measure necessary to allow the population of the species to recover. The fishermen contest this and attribute the greater problem to the many illegal unlicensed urchin fishers. They say the regional government has already designated so many protected areas. Some in the community are in favour of the ban. The ban is the right thing to do. But it has come to this point because there are many people without a license who, in my opinion, go fishing. Others thought a compromise would be a better solution. As a researcher, I see the two sides of the story. The need for the sea urchin as an economic resource for fishermen, but also its role as a link in the atrophy chain, which is important in coastal ecology. The government has promised compensation to the fishermen, some of whom are ex-convicts, taking part in a rehabilitation project. But they said they were still awaiting details. Many fishermen say they are determined to fight the ban to save their livelihoods. A fisherman is born a fisherman and dies a fisherman. He can't change his profession overnight. Following heated debates with the authorities, the ban could be briefly lifted until the end of the fishing season in April. But for the moment, the urchin hunters are not fishing and angrily await their fate. Joy Duguid, NTD News.
A rescued baby sloth is being cared for by experts in Colombia. A vet tending the Hoffman's two-toed sloth, which is just one month old, said it needed round-the-clock care. Dr. Patricia Rojas says normally these sloths are with their mother for one year. They stop breastfeeding at seven months. The sloth was rescued by firefighters in a rural area. The species lives in forests in Central and South America and spends much of its time upside down. Its habitat stretches from Costa Rica and Ecuador to the Amazon rainforests in Peru and Bolivia. A wildlife park in the UK is welcoming a special bundle of joy, a baby southern koala. Keepers and carers there are celebrating its milestone arrival. It's the first of the species born in the country, as well as the first in all of Europe. Let's take a closer look. A new baby koala has finally ventured out of its mother's pouch. It was born six months ago at the UK's Longleat Safari Park. Its birth came as a milestone not only for the country, but also for all of Europe. First one at Longleat, and it's the first koala being born in England for a long time, and then the first uh, southern koala uh, probably ever in Europe. Breeders weren't prepared for the new arrival, since their attention was focused on another potential mating pair. To learn more about koalas, the park is working with the University of Nottingham and wildlife authorities in Australia. Koalas are a very complicated animal. They suffer with uh, an awful lot of threats in the wild, from illness and, and disease to, sadly, the catastrophic uh, effects we saw of the bushfires in early 2020. And just from the time that the koalas have been here at the park, we've already helped that research going forward. Breeders haven't settled on a name for the tiny new resident. That's because they can't yet tell if it's a boy or a girl. The baby koala will remain attached to its mother for several months, so visitors will be able to observe their special bond for a while longer. Mexico City's newest airport will include a peculiar museum showcasing mammoth skeletons discovered near the site during the terminal's construction. These archaeologists are working on the conservation of the bones belonging to the species that is believed to have roamed the area 25,000 years ago. The museum will also serve as a research facility to better understand mammoths and their extinction and look for clues on the environmental conditions of the Earth during the Pleistocene epoch. The new airport opens March 21st. Does red wine really lower blood pressure? We find out in this segment of Strong Mind and Body with Gina Marie. If you can lower your blood pressure and improve your heart health with red wine, why not drink up, right? Red wine's effects on circulation, vein and artery health and overall heart health can be overblown. And why wouldn't they be? It essentially serves as an excuse to do something a lot of people enjoy. But the evidence supporting red wine's purported health benefits is a little murky. Red wine contains resveratrol, an antioxidant common in foods such as berries, apples and tea that can be good for your arteries. But it's also got alcohol, which isn't good for your heart. Of course, one of the potential positive effects of red wine on blood pressure is reducing stress. Alcohol lowers inhibitions and helps most people relax, which can be appealing. But there's still plenty of debate surrounding whether red wine in particular has benefits to heart health. 
Most of the research on red wine has found a link between the risk of dying from heart disease and moderate wine consumption. However, similar studies are showing comparable effects from spirits and beer which don't have resveratrol. Red wine is an special health food. In fact, you would likely have to get fall down drunk in order to consume enough red wine to get the effects of its resveratrol. So take red wine and alcohol in general for what it is, something that can help people relax and enjoy the company of others. Usually one or two glasses will let you unwind without posing a risk to heart health, but if you really want to improve blood flow and circulation and enjoy a lower risk for heart disease, you're best off adopting lifestyle routines such as the Mediterranean style diet and of course getting daily exercise. Thanks for watching. At NTD, we're honored to be your source for the news. Catch us again tonight at 6.30 Eastern. In New York City, I'm Kevin Hogan.